The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as you're turning there, the prophet Joel wrote, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. And then he said, The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Uh, the great and terrible day of the Lord, that is the theme of the message today and for the next several weeks. The prophets spoke of it, and Jesus said there is a day coming that is unlike any other time that the world has seen. And the day that he referenced is the time that God is going to bring this world to a close. It's when he will settle all the affairs of men according to his perfect justice. And we can expect that it will be a great and terrible day, not only because the Bible says that it will be, but because we can look around us every day and we can see the wickedness of this world and truly we can expect that God is going to do something about what's going on in this world today. Every day we ask ourselves the question, what is this world coming to? And I can tell you the answer to that question is very clear, that it's coming to a day of reckoning It's coming to a terrible day that is going to end in God's courtroom where every person will give an account of his life. Now, although the Bible describes that time and warns of it, it doesn't say that there is a Christian today who will see the great and terrible day of the Lord or will experience it that is not in their mortal bodies. According to 1 Thessalonians 4 that we've studied the past few weeks, All Christians are going to be removed from this earth beforehand, and so they will be delivered from that great day of wrath. The removal of Christians from the world is the term that we know as the rapture. It's to be caught up to be with Christ, that immediately the body will be changed, it will be glorified to be like Christ, and it will be taken up into heaven. So there isn't any need to fear If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't need to fear the day of the Lord that's coming. And the information that is given here in this text and in other places of the Word of God that describe the day of the Lord, all of that is motivation that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you need to repent of your sins and come to Him today. And that's because you don't know the day or the hour. Now, we don't often give invitations to messages at the very beginning, but in in this series, I've done that, and that's to encourage you, before you even listen to what I have to say, be aware of this, that there is a day of reckoning coming. We are going to stand before God, and you need to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, the occasion of this letter to the Thessalonian church, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to them because they were confused. They had conflated the rapture of Christians with the day of the Lord. Because of persecution that they experienced, they were concerned that the day of the Lord had already come. And they had missed that that promise that Paul made 
about the rapture of his people. They'd missed all of that and they thought that they were then in the day of the Lord. But Paul said, no, that day is not here yet. And so he follows up with further instructions on what they should do as they anticipate the return of Christ. Now he begins the fifth chapter, verse number one. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now in our last message, we began by looking at Old Testament scriptures that confirm the certainty of this day that will come. That was the first point of the message the last time, and that was the certainty of the day. There are many, many Old Testament passages that that tell us about this great and terrible day of the Lord that's coming. And always in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord signifies God's wrath and his vengeance upon his enemies. There is a common theme that runs through the Old Testament prophets. When you read Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, Amos, Zechariah and Malachi and others, there is this theme of expectation that the Lord will return. And when he returns, he will return in great fury as he intends to separate the wicked from the just. Now, if we removed those many passages of the Old Testament that speak of this day, then the Bible that you carry around with you would have few pages. It'd be a very light volume. And then if you remove the New Testament passages that speak of it, you'd have just a few pages that were dangling from two cover boards. I mean, this is a common theme of Scripture. We can't escape this. The day of the Lord is coming. Now, the theme of the, of the Bible is the salvation of God's people. It's salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and it's God's determination to restore the world to the pristine condition that it was in uh, before Adam fell, that is, in the original creation. So to remove the day of the Lord, to take that out of our teaching, to remove that from our sermons, uh, is to remove the purpose of the Bible. That the Bible is about God's intention for man, God's plan and purpose for the world. There are some who tell you that the Bible is about how God wants to have a relationship with man, as if God is the one that's estranged. In other words, they would tell you that the Bible is anthropocentric. That word simply means that man is at the center of the scriptures. But that's not what the Bible teaches, and I don't think so. The Bible is about how God is glorified through man, that we are estranged from him, The Bible is theocentric, or in other words, God is the center of scriptures. In the beginning, God. It's primarily about God and the revelation of how God is to be glorified through the creatures that he created. And that is one thing that we must remember. We are the creature. God is the creator. And this word is about him. Now, when we read about the day of the Lord, we're clued into the reason this world exists And where man is headed according to God's eternal plan. Truly what we find here is the answer to that question. What is this world coming to? Now secondly, we discuss the uncertainty of the day. It is certain to happen, but there are also some uncertainties about it. The fifth chapter begins, But of the times and seasons, brethren, 
you have no need that I write unto you. Now, there are many Bible references that tell us the day is coming, but in more than 100 passages on this subject, we're never told when it's coming. So Paul said, I have no need to write about it. He said that for two reasons. First, he had already taught them what the Old Testament said about the day. He couldn't avoid it. It's so prominent in Old Testament scriptures, as I've just mentioned, that it would be impossible for Paul to teach these people about salvation and what they're being saved from unless he took them right to the day of the Lord. There's wrath coming. This is what you're being saved from. And so to have any semblance of understanding of what Christianity is about, what the church is about, what the message is about, people have to be told the day of the Lord is coming. So Paul told them that. They were very much aware of that. So he says, I don't have a need to tell you about that again. He'd already taught them about that. God is going to save us from the wrath of come to come. Now Paul didn't give that much information in this text because he had already been through it in many Old Testament texts at the very beginning when he started the church at Thessalonica. But it's evident from this book that he'd not discussed the rapture, that he'd not said very much about the rapture, because in chapter 4 he goes over that part. He speaks more about that part. He corrects their misunderstandings, and this is because the rapture is not explained in all of these Old Testament texts. That's what we find in the New Testament. It's New Testament revelation. But this part, no. The day of the Lord is very well explained. It's a very, it is a major part of the teaching of the Old Testament. And so in chapter 5, there, there, there comes then a change in the subject. Now the first was he's, he's talking about the rapture. And then the beginning of this fifth chapter can be translated on the topic of, now he said, I'm changing subjects on the topic of the times and the seasons. So he switches from the subject of the rapture to speak to us just very briefly on the day of the Lord. Now, both of those are part of end time events, but those are separated. The rapture and the day of the Lord are separated because the rapture, in the rapture, God's people will be taken out. They won't see the day of the Lord from a mortal perspective. Now, the second reason that he didn't need to say more is because the times and the seasons, that is the timing of when this will happen, the dates and events uh, and when that's going to happen, that is unknown. He can't elaborate on that part because there is no one who knows when it will happen. Jesus said, nobody but my father knows. Certainly the apostles didn't know. This was always on their mind. They were always asking the question, when is the kingdom coming? The prophets didn't know. And you would think if they did know, that'd be the very first thing they would say. That's point number one. Here's the date that it's going to happen. What is it that most people want to know? They want to know when. And as I I said in the first message, people ask me all the time, when? Do you think this is a sign that Christ is coming? Is that a sign? Is it near? Paul said, I don't know. Jesus didn't know. The apostles didn't know. And so therefore, Paul says, there's no need for me to write on the times and the seasons and that from that aspect. Now today, though, we are going to step further into this study to discuss what that day is going to be like. We don't know when it will be, but the Bible does tell us what it will be. It tells us what's going to happen in that time. So we're going to look at point number three today, and that is the characteristics of the day. 
The seasons. When he says the seasons, those are the characteristics of the times. What will that day, or all of those days that comprise the day of the Lord, what will those days look like? Well, let me start with you here with just a a broad overview of what happens in the end times. We're going to get really, really specific later on, but just the broad overview of what will take place. The best word that describes it is the word wrath. I mean that the day of the Lord is a day of wrath. And people need to know that God is a God of wrath. Oh yes, some folks will say, we know that God is, is angry. God is a very angry God and this is because God is mean. This doesn't have anything to do with meanness. God's wrath relates to his justice. That what God does, he treats people according to their just deserts. He rewards and he chastises accordingly. And that's what we would expect from an honest, forthright, perfect judge. We expect that a good judge, a perfect judge, would give justice. So you look at that and some will say, well, yes, uh, we know that God is a God of justice and God is angry, God's mad about sin, all of those things. But Jesus is not that way. Jesus isn't that way. Jesus has a calming effect on the Father. That what he does is try to calm the Father down, sort of talk him down from his anger so he won't be so angry at us. Well, that's wrong. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And so you should mark this very well, that God's judgment is Jesus' judgment. In John 5, 22, Jesus said, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment under the Son. And so as you read what's written in the Scriptures about what's going to happen in those times, you've always got to remember this, that's Jesus Christ. Looking in the Old Testament Scriptures, that's Jesus Christ who's going to do these things. He's the one who is the judge. He's the one that you're going to meet in the end times. In John 5, 27 to 29, he said, Jesus said, and hath given him, given Jesus authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good under the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. So the Old Testament wrath of Jesus Christ is the wrath of God. You see him in Revelation 19, where he comes in judgment. He comes riding on a white horse. And the Bible says that he comes with a sharp sword, that his clothing is stained with blood, and his intent is to kill and conquer. The day of the Lord is a day of vengeance on his enemies. And so you may ask the question, who are his enemies? You. You, if you don't know Christ as Savior, you are the enemy of God. If you haven't been saved by the grace of God, you are God's enemy. And so listen very carefully to this, that anyone who dares to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Master will experience the wrath of God. Pay very close attention to the Scriptures. Isaiah chapter 2 says, Enter into the rock, or hide in the caves, hide thee in the dust, for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, 
he shall be brought low. Oh, there are so many passages of Scripture that speak of the wrath of God. And so then we get the pendulum swings the other way. And so we begin to ask, is that all that God is? Is God just full of wrath and that's all that God is? Is he not also a God of love? And we have the answer to that question. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But as you listen to that scripture, you must also understand that the only reason that God loves us is for Christ's sake. He loves us only in Christ. And the ones that he loves have been chosen in Christ. Outside of Christ, there is nothing but condemnation. Now the method, or the message rather of John 3.16, is the love of God in sending Christ into the world to deliver us from this very thing that we're discussing, the wrath that is to come. But the same passage goes on to say, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now do you understand that the gospel of salvation is also a gospel of wrath? It does speak of love, but it also speaks of wrath. And I'm afraid for those churches who are very, very careful to read John 3.16 But they never get as far as reading John 3.36. And friends, we need to know both of those scriptures. We need to understand it very, very well. That not everybody's going to be saved. Not everybody's going to heaven. Some will experience the wrath of God. That day of wrath is coming. It's vengeance on those who reject Christ as Savior. Now the day of the Lord, though, it, it has its period. There is a chronology of events that will take place in the end times. It starts with, well, we separated out the rapture. There is the rapture. But then right after that, there comes seven years of vengeance. Seven years of tribulation which, in which Israel will be brought back to God and they will be restored as God's holy nation. They're His chosen people in that time to bring salvation to the world. And in the very beginning, God chose Israel that he would bring salvation to the world. Now, they've abdicated that responsibility, but that's what he intended in the beginning, and that's what's going to happen in the end. Now, you remember, I hope, the prophecy of Simeon at the birth of Jesus, that he looked at the child, looked into the face of the child when he was brought into the temple for dedication. And Simeon said, For mine eyes have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Now the first thing you notice there is that Gentiles are brought into the covenant of grace. Now you read about Gentiles in the Old Testament. We've just read in Isaiah where God called them the beasts of the field. But salvation has been opened up to Gentile people. And then he goes on to say something about Israel. He says, Christ is their glory. When is Christ their glory? It wasn't in the first advent. When Christ came, they crucified him. They hung him on a cross. There was no glory for Israel then. So when does that happen? It's when God restores them to their kingdom. So the day of the Lord also includes this. It includes the great day of restoration of Israel into a worldwide kingdom. Now today, you and I know Israel as this very small strip of land in the Mideast. 
But when this day comes, God will extend their kingdom across the world. Now there are seven years of wrath, and then comes this glorious kingdom of Christ where Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David. He is the heir, the last king of the throne of David. His name is Jesus Christ. So seven years of tribulation and then 1,000 years of perfect peace. Nation will not war against nation. No one will hurt or destroy in all of God's holy mountain. And the earth begins the purging from the curse. So when you ask about the love of God, do you say, is, is this thing unbalanced? Love and wrath, is that unbalanced? Well, let's see. You have seven years of vengeance, but then 1,000 years of perfect peace, benevolence, the peace of God on all people, all of mankind blessed for a thousand years. Oh, though, but we see a difference in the perfection of God and the evil heart of man, and that's demonstrated at the end of this earthly kingdom, because at the end of the righteous kingdom, all this time, a thousand years, has never changed the evil heart of man. Because at the end, the devil is set free, he stirs up evil once again, and wicked men gather to do war against God. And this is when God destroys the devil. He destroys all of his demons. He destroys all those who follow Satan. And then comes the end of the day of the Lord, and it ends in judgment. It ends in God's courtroom, where Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, destroys the wicked in the eternal lake of fire. Is he a God of love? Yes, he is a God of love. He loves his people and he loves you so much as a believer in Jesus Christ that he has promised he will keep you from destruction and death in that day of wrath. Now, after the great and terrible day of the Lord, God is going to remake the earth. Sin is gone forever. That's when he builds the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, and it descends from heaven above and his church, his bride, is gloriously arrayed in his righteousness. And they live in this magnificent city forever. Now what's the message in all of this? Well, the message is to be ready. We don't know the times or the seasons. The day of the Lord comes suddenly. Christ comes to rapture his church. And as soon as that happens, folks, as soon as that happens, the day of the Lord is afoot. Be ready, because you don't know the hour. Tomorrow may be too late. Now that's the overview of it. That, that's the big picture. The Lord is coming to deliver us from wrath. We will escape the day of wrath. But be aware, we are still going to meet the Lord. We are going to meet Him, aren't we? We shall see Him as He is. That's what Scripture says. We shall see Him as He is. Well, if we see Him as He is, He's going to see us as we are. And the question is, have we been faithful? Here on this, on this page... I wrote down all of those subjects that I talked to you about just a moment ago. Faithfulness in the home, faithfulness in our worship, faith, faithfulness in the face of the criticism of the world, faithfulness to guard the truth of God, faithfulness in our prayers, faithfulness in our culture, faithfulness to stand strong in the pulpit for Jesus Christ. Will He find us faithful? Will He find us unblameable? Back in chapter 2, verse number 12, he says that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Now the Lord will come to deliver us from wrath and because of our salvation we should live in gratitude. 
Every single day, we should be striving for holiness. Earlier in our discussions in the form class, we talked about that confessional prayer that we have every week. And I said, before we can ever come to worship God, our hearts must be clear. Our hearts must be repentant. We must come to God with a clean heart for we, before we can expect Him to bless us. And that's not just a Sunday morning thing. That's an everyday thing. How holy and unblameable are we? Now the world, the Bible says that others are, are going to face God's wrath. They're not striving for holiness. They don't care about holiness. The world of unbelievers will not escape the wrath to come, but they will be immersed in the fierceness of God's wrath. Now, I'd like to go back for a moment to a passage in Isaiah that I read a couple of weeks ago. If you want to turn there to Isaiah chapter 13, uh, the purpose in reading it the last time was to be indicative of the many Old Testament passages that speak of the day of the Lord. I couldn't read them all, so I just picked out a few. This is one that we read, and uh, I read it because of the certainty of the day. That was the point of reading it, to show the Old Testament talks about the certainty of this day. But now I, I want us to look at it as it describes the characteristics of that time. Isaiah 13, verse number 9. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened and is going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. Now, if you'll just review there a moment at verse number 13, that is a shocking verse. We notice the adjectives that in the passage that describe this day, it says that it is cruel, there is wrath, there is fierce anger. And that word fierce, the word fierce, you might want to underline that. It means burning. It's as if God's Anger is set on fire. You don't want to meet God that way. It's a day of vengeance. I keep repeating that. Vengeance. And that's because the Bible doesn't let us forget it. It's a time that God will answer the question on the minds of downtrodden, persecuted believers. The, hearty, uh, the, the holy martyrs of Revelation 6.10 ask this question, How long, O Lord, holy and true... Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? How long will it be? And they cry out for justice. God will chasten and destroy in his hot displeasure. But then also understand that time is going to end. That time will end. That season will end. And when it ends, it blossoms into the glorious, righteous kingdom of the great almighty God. Now once again, that's the big picture. That's the overview of the day of the Lord. Now, for the little bit of time that I have left, uh, we need to, to get specific. We will over these next few weeks. And I want to talk to you about what Paul told them in the white space. You ever heard about the white spaces of the Bible? You understand what I mean? 
What, what took place and what's already happened that you don't see in the actual text of the Scripture? What's the background? That's what's in the white spaces. What's in the white space when Paul said, I don't have any need to write unto you? Well, our question is, what did he tell them? What would he have told them before? What are the specifics? So, number four in your outline is the calamity of the day. That's what we'll find in the white spaces, the calamity. Now, before we get into those details, we refer again to God's calendar that the next event that you and I await is the rapture of God's people. The rapture ends the church age. Last year, we studied the seven churches of Asia. That's in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Those chapters, if you want to review them again, those are the last words of Jesus Christ to the church. After Revelation 3, the church is not mentioned. It's not mentioned again until the end of the Revelation. And then the church is not on the world. In the world, the church is in glory. Now, at the end of the church age, that is, after the rapture, this is when the day of the Lord begins in earnest. This is the time that judgment begins. Now, the day of the Lord encompasses many events. Many things are going to happen. The rapture is separated from those from all these other events, it precedes those events, so the church never sees any part of God's wrath. We must understand that there are two phases to the Lord's return. The first is when he comes in the air. When Christ comes in the rapture, he doesn't come to the earth. He comes in the air. He never sets foot on the earth at that time. This is when the dead in Christ arise. It's when the living saints are changed and they're taken up into the air to, to go to Christ into heaven. That's the rapture in chapter 4. There is a second phase. And it begins with the calamity of tribulation and it ends in the return of Christ to this earth. He comes as Revelation 19 describes. That is on the white horse with his armies. He comes and he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. He returns to the earth. He comes with thousands of his saints. He comes with great angelic host. And he comes to defeat the Antichrist and to imprison Satan and his demons in the abyss. When he does that, that's when the kingdom on earth begins. Now, I'd like to break down the events. They're the seasons of the Lord's return. You go back to our text again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But of the times and the seasons, that simply means the epochs, the events, brethren. You have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The Lord comes as a thief in the night. That's the suddenness. That's what it's trying to impress upon us. The suddenness of it, which accentuates the unpreparedness of people. They're not looking for it. Now, that, this verse doesn't describe the rapture, not specifically, but refers to the suddenness of his return after the tribulation. Now, listen to the attitude of people at that time. For when they shall say, peace and safety... Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Peace and safety, that's what they say. While at the same time, they've been immersed in tribulation. There certainly is no peace and safety, but they are deceived. They're deceived into thinking that the worst is over. This man called the Antichrist comes who deceives them and makes them think that he is their savior. 
That everything will be all right because now I am here, he says. But notice how the Lord will approach. It is as travail upon a woman with child. A travail, that's the old uh, King James word that means labor pains. When a woman is pregnant and she's closing in on her time for delivery, she experiences labor pains. After nine months of gestation, when that's over, labor pains begin. You ladies that have children, usually it works this way. I understand sometimes it doesn't, but usually this way. Labor pains begin, and they're slight. They're felt, but they aren't alarming. You know something's about to happen. They're noticeable. They're signs that the baby is coming, but the baby is not there yet. But then there's a few days that go by, and the pain intensifies. It hurts more. The mother struggles to maintain. Finally, there's no stopping the pain. And the baby comes. The child is born. And in that birth, that's the most excruciating pain they say a person can have. Childbirth. A natural childbirth. Now, the Bible says that the day of the Lord will happen in that way. The prophet Micah in the Old Testament said this very thing. It's like a woman in travail. It's the birth pains. It's hard labor. It's painful. And that's God's method of purging the earth. It will be through much pain and trouble. Now if you'll turn to Matthew 24. This is where Jesus taught about those times. And I want you to remember as we read that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. All of them are Jews. And he discusses how the kingdom will be brought in because that was the most pressing question on their minds. He is the king of the kingdom. And so they ask him, when, how will this kingdom come? Now here Jesus is in the last week of his life. Shortly he would be on the cross. Most certainly the disciples would wonder, what happened to the kingdom? You crucify the king, what happens to the kingdom? And so he gave them some parting words about it. And listen to the questions asked and the answers he gave. Matthew 24, verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines, and pestilences, and earthquakes, and divers places. These are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come." Now, after Jesus spoke these verses, he began to break down the events even further. In the eighth verse, he said, These things are the beginning of sorrows. Sorrows. That's the very same word translated travail in our text in 1 Thessalonians 5. It means these things, Jesus says, these things are the beginning of the birth pains. Well, what are these birth pains? 
We'll discuss that. The first one is in verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. That's the first birth pang. In those days, it will be a time of religious deception. Religious deception. Now, deception is a characteristic not just of that time. It's a characteristic of all times. The devil started his career with deception. He's a liar, the father of all lies. He's a great deceiver. The first words that the devil spoke to a human were deceptive words. He said to Eve, Eve, you don't need to believe God. God, God said, if you eat of the tree, that'll be bad for you. That's not true, Eve. If you eat of the tree, it'll be very good for you. Because then you'll understand. Then you'll see as God sees. It'll be a good thing. God lied to you. You're not going to die. You'll know what God knows. And Eve's deception is the basis of all idolatry. The first idol is the one that man made in his heart. Is when the creature thought, I shall be like God. And that soon became, I am God. Did you know that every sin that you commit, think about it very carefully, every sin that you commit, you say, I know more than God. I will defy God. All the sins going on in the world, among Christians and non-Christians alike, are all saying, I know better than God. And this is why I do this. So throughout religious history, it's been a problem. Deception has been a problem. It's a terrible problem today, perhaps more than in any other time. Because we have seen the dilution of the gospel as false gospels of those pretending to be Christian crop up in churches on every corner. And it's, it's a great problem because of global outreach. Some of them become mega churches with global outreach. And the world, the world loves what they have to say because it's the same old idolatry as the Garden of Eden. The very same thing that attracted Eve. You just listen to them as they preach and they tell you how awesome you are. Eve, you're like God. Eve, you can be God. You are such an awesome person. Until finally it comes down to people who hear that preaching over and over again, finally come to the conclusion, why do I need God? Why do I need Jesus? I'm so awesome the way that I am. It's always, who am I? Not who is God. And as I said, they may have a global outreach. They do. TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, that is a tool of the devil. You just turn it off lest you be deceived. Pat Robertson with his broadcasting empire, that's the devil's tool of deception. Jimmy Swaggart with his sunlight TV and they're all their global outreach, that is deception. That deception is very real today. But the point here that Jesus makes is all of that that you see today, that just pales in comparison to the deception in the day of the Lord. Now here we have a very peculiar thing. In chapter 4, Christ comes in the air. All of God's people are taken out of the world. The church age is then ended. As I said, after chapter 3 in Revelation, there's no church in the world. And then the Bible goes on to describe tribulation. Ah, but there's a problem. The false churches are left behind. They're still here. In case you didn't know, church is an enterprise. Church is a business And after the rapture, 10 o'clock will come on Sunday morning and parking lots will be full. In fact, I think they'll have special services because there's much speculation about what just happened. 
Some of those church buildings, the ones of true churches, will be empty. Where did all those people go? That, that has to be a question on people's minds. Where did they all go? I remember after 9-11, I was in Florida. All the airports across the country were closed. Travel stopped because of fear. Nobody knew if there were other hijackers out there and what they would do. I was scheduled to return to California, but I couldn't leave. Couldn't get a plane out. There's no flights. So back here at home, at church, Pastor Cregan called for a special service, and the church met to pray and to consider this horrible event that just occurred. People needed reassurance. Uh, people just needed some, some help in that terrible time. And I can imagine in the aftermath of the rapture, it'll be much the same, that pastors will call special services, the apostate churches will gather, and the spin doctors will spin, but they won't tell the truth. Can you imagine Joel Osteen standing in front of his 40,000 with a frown? Joel never frowns. Uh, he says, I'm so sorry, but we've been left behind. No, he can't frown. So he'll smile and he'll say, cheer up. Think positively. Speak your words into action. You can overcome this. You are what you think. Everything is fine. This is the best day of the rest of your life. Think about how good it will be. No crowds at the, at the mall anymore. You can find the best parking spots from now on. Can I sign a book for you? As Paul wrote, peace and safety. Joel will say, yes, peace and safety. And the great deception is on. You ever wondered about that? How are they going to explain away all these missing people? Scientists won't have an answer. But then you think, well, maybe they will. I mean, do they have any trouble getting people to believe the great lie of evolution? So I don't think this is going to be a problem. And I remind you in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says they are so wicked. People in that day are so resistant to truth that God will send strong delusion. They will keep believing the lies that they love to believe. Lies are everywhere. And people take the lies like ducks to water. See, Satan doesn't care if you're religious. He doesn't care what religion you have. He doesn't care if you're very, very religious as long as he keeps you from the truth. He blinds people to the truth. And so he has his religious deception out there to blind your eyes and keep you from the truth. And religious deception is not hard for Satan because the natural human heart loves that kind of stuff. In those days, the Holy Spirit will stop restraining sin and lies. And then Satan has a heyday of deception. Where there is no true church to combat the lies, the lies multiply like cockroaches. The rapture will be explained away. Churches will go on meeting and rocking out for Jesus. And they're satisfied and they will say, peace and safety. That's the first birth pain. Satan gets the world to believe that everything is fine. While he's setting up the world for the end to Christ. The greatest deceiver of all time. Who is as diabolical as Satan himself. Well, we're out of time. And I want to leave you with that first birth pang to think about. I would tell you, just go home, turn on your TV, turn to TBN this week, and you'll see Joel in action. You'll see exactly what it's going to be like. I mean, it's going to be a repeat. Or it's going to be, a, I should say, that's going to be a, a foretaste, a, a prediction of what will happen. The very same things that he's teaching now, he'll still be teaching then. I'd tell you to do that. But then i just encourage you to listen to a lie. You know, sometimes I listen to that to check out how the devil's working so I can warn you. 
But let me tell you something. If you're weak and you're gullible, you don't want to expose yourself to those lies. Satan knows how to trick you. The devil's lies lead to a devil's hell. Or better said, they lead to God's hell because he's the one who owns it. And even Satan is going to be in there someday. So what do you do about this? Well, every sermon will end, in this series, will end with this. It's an encouragement to trust Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, trust Jesus Christ, so that you won't see the wrath to come. And that's the only way that you'll escape it. Paul said, sudden destruction will come, and they shall not escape. On whom will it come? On them. Not on us who believe. We're okay. We're safe. We'll leave this world. It comes on them. So you don't want to be one of them. Repent and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we won't experience this day of wrath, but you have given us responsibility to warn people of it. It's coming. It's certain to come. We don't know when, but it is certain to come. And Lord, it could happen today, tomorrow, in a week. We just don't know. The time to receive Christ as Savior is today. The message has been preached. The gospel has been given. We ask for your Holy Spirit to convict hearts with the message and bring them to Jesus Christ. Help us as Christians to live holy, unblameable lives worthy of the kingdom that is coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.